Oh, hey, it's been a minute. Hello, I am so glad to welcome you back for a new season of Everything Happens. My name is Kate Bowler, and if you're new here, I'm a professor of history at Duke. I'm the author of books with sort of medium depressing titles that could make you laugh or cry, depending on the day, I guess. I'm the mom of a third grader who has like a lot of very specific questions about piracy. And I study the stories we tell about whether our lives work out, whether we are lucky or unlucky, whether we feel like we have the lives we deserve. So on this podcast, I have conversations with wise and funny and kind people about what they've learned about hope and joy and courage when life falls apart. You know, the exact sort of things you wish someone would tell you when life gets really hard. And so today I thought I would have a conversation with someone who knows a lot about what it's like to be us, to have that feeling of being cracked open. When you learn something that maybe you didn't want to, something happened to you or to someone you loved, or maybe you went into a profession, teaching, service, ministry, healthcare, just something that caused you to be so aware of the pain of everyone else around you. So yeah, this is what we do together here. We have those kinds of conversations, conversations we hope will sustain us for the days and weeks to come. You are going to absolutely love my guest today. His name is Dr. Ibram Kendi, and he is famous for his work on anti-racism. But so much of the bravery that we're going to talk about comes from that initial feeling that he had of being cracked open by a life-changing moment, a moment he couldn't walk back from, even if he wanted to. Because, yeah, once we're cracked open, if we're lucky, we're sort of open to everything. Dr. Ibram Kendi is a historian at Boston University, where he also serves as the director for the Center for Anti-Racist Research. In 2020, Time Magazine named him as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He was also awarded a 2021 MacArthur Genius Fellowship. But wait, there's more. Our guest today is very accomplished. He is the author of 10 New York Times bestselling books like Stamped from the Beginning, for which he earned the National Book Award for Nonfiction, and How to Be an Anti-Racist. His latest book is How to Raise an Anti-Racist. And Ibram is also someone who knows intimately what it's like to experience the fragility of life. Hello, friend. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. Hello. I'm so glad we're able to do this. It's such a beautiful thing for me to be able to talk to someone where you know immediately that you don't have to convince the other person that life is fragile and beautiful and has far more obstacles than you hoped that it would. I always, uh, with this podcast, there's always kind of a, a strange moment at the very beginning where there's a guest, usually a stranger, and we both have to intuit almost in the first few sentences where um, whether they understand themselves as being fragile in the world. 
And so, like, if they can accept that, great. But if they can't, then, like, oh, boy, we've got to start, like, <laughs> before the beginning. So I really appreciate the fact that we can both start with our own precarity. Of course, yeah. And I, I, I think humanity or human life gives us, if we don't realize it, eventually it'll tell us. <laughs> That's right. Yes. So as you know, I teach in a Methodist seminary, so most of the students will go on to prepare for ministry of some kind. And I wondered if I could ask you about your faith growing up. Your parents were both in the African Methodist Episcopal tradition. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, my father joined the ministry, became a minister at an AME church, I believe in like 1989. So I was like seven years old. And, yeah. and I think Right around the time I graduated high school, about 10 years later, that's when my mother entered the ministry. And so wow. for the better part of my life, both of my parents have, have been ministers. Um, and yeah. in, in many ways, they, they've taught me so much about how to yeah. reach people, particularly everyday people, um, where they are. Mm -hmm. And then imagine that deep sense of calling and purpose that I can see all over your work. Imagine you didn't expect to just have a job you wanted. No. Yeah. And, and what's striking is I've had some critics of my work describe me uh, as more ministerial than scholarly and, and mm. even quote anti-racism as almost like a religion. Mm. And Certainly, they, they're, they're doing that to delegitimate sort of the science that's at the basis of, you know, my work. But on the other hand, I actually view it as, as a compliment because yeah. to be a minister and to minister to people, to individuals, is to first and foremost have the capacity to reach and engage um, and understand what individuals, what everyday people are going through. Yeah. And, and I think too often academics are too far removed from the everyday struggles of people. And we wonder why we, you know, they're not connecting with our work. But I think for me, the turn toward maybe making, wanting to feel the weight of what history tells us was that I wanted there to be something more at stake. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, in that way, I don't mind being you know, evangelical, like, do you want to tract about this? Great. <laughs> I am like out there on the street corner, like ready to have this mean more than, than a job or a, or a conference paper. Yeah. And the, the irony is there's, there is a person who creates propaganda. They know what they're saying is a lie. They have a larger uh, political purpose in manipulating people to support laws or, or policymakers who are going to undermine those very people's livelihood and interest. Mm -hmm. that, that to me is a very different thing than, than somebody who spends a decade researching a topic, uh, gathers the evidence, uh, comes to understand it, uh, learns how to con convey it, and then spends their career conveying it you know, to people um, and, and continues to convey it from the basis of research. To me, those are two completely different things. Yeah. One of my great hopes uh, for ideas 
is that they carry the weight of our lives and that if they're they're meaningful then and well researched and have the convenience of being true <laughs> then they change us all and it reminded me of um you writing about your dad listening in on a class by Dr. James Cohn and what what it would mean then in this context to be a Christian and he answered a Christian is one who strives for liberation and that sounded to me like one of the deep purposes of your work is you want ideas that set us free yes and and what is the purpose of creating ideas what is the purpose of gathering and amassing research what it, what is the purpose of understanding human problems if we're not seeking to solve those problems to allow humans to be more free and more joyful then i don't i couldn't just do it for the sake of doing it i mean i i feel like we as as scholars and you know should have a larger purpose too but footnotes but footnotes ibram we could just we could just be great at parties with like unbelievably well-resourced anecdotes yeah at this point i just want it to matter like i want it all to matter even just starting another you know starting a book starting at anything maybe the ticking feeling has become something that's transformed my life and i wonder if you feel the urgency or would like describe the urgency in the same way because we both have a lot more in common than either of us would hope we both got stage four cancer at 35. we both had no history of illness in our family in that way i think my kid was two i think yours was one i wonder if you wouldn't mind telling me about those months leading up to the diagnosis because you were in the middle of like a really incredible moment for your work. Everything was really like building momentum and coming together. And this must have been like the undoing of a world for you. Yeah. So in the summer of, of 2017, I moved to Washington, D.C. And, and, and took a new job at American University and started a new center. And it was that time in which I started having some symptoms, you know, particularly needing to, to go to the bathroom and almost every other, every 30 minutes, yeah. Um, yeah. only for nothing to come out. And I started sort of losing weight, although I didn't, it was mm. small enough that I didn't necessarily notice it. Um, and so it wasn't really until Thanksgiving break that I thought what I thought was a, a, a stomach virus. And I, that's when I started sort of bleeding when I was yeah. um, doing a number two, as my daughter would call it. <laughs> and, um, and the bleeding didn't stop. And, but I didn't think. I knew it was a problem, but I didn't think it yeah. was extremely serious. And it really wasn't until that um, New Year's break when I went on a vacation with my partner, who's a physician. And, and I think that's when she saw the totality of all of my symptoms, because yeah. we were together in the same house for a whole week. 
And that's when she just got on the phone and um, ensured that I got a colonoscopy when I got back. And that's, of course, when I found out um, that I had this cancer. When you were like, assumed it would be manageable, assumed it would be like a series of small events, I, uh, I don't think anything would have prepared me for the surrealness of a diagnosis yeah. like that. Well, and part of it, I don't know what happened in your case, but we, I saw a nurse practitioner before we had the, the procedure on my colon to just, you know, yeah. and because of my age, you know, because of my risk factors, you know, she explicitly stated, oh, of course, there's a chance this could be colon cancer, but I don't think that that's yeah. what it is. Um, so in a way, because of the our ages, because of our risk factors, it's it's played down. So I think that almost mm-hmm. increases the shock mm-hmm. when when we're diagnosed. I wonder when you talk to other people, and I'm sure you've met so many of them by now, why it feels so hard for people to accept the severity of a diagnosis like that, or even just to maybe accept that by nature we're made of such fragile stuff. My suspicion, and I think this even started when I had cancer. I, I partly because my 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 partner Sadika, she had breast cancer a few years prior, and one of the things that I noticed in caregiving for her was how weird people acted around occasion you know someone who had cancer yeah and and you know it took me a while to figure out like why were why did people act in such a weird capacity around a cancer patient and i wonder if it speaks very simply to to your to your question which is that by people who don't have cancer coming across a cancer patient by people let me say be more specific someone who does not fully appreciate or understand the fragility of life interacting with a cancer patient it forces them yeah, yeah. to come to grips with the fragility of life and they don't like that so that sort of then makes them weird around that specific person yeah like I felt like a sort of public service announcement for mortality. Like I was just breaking into people's houses and giving them the news. Like, dear yeah. sir or ma'am, I am sorry to unfortunately remind you <laughs> that we may or may not will die at some point in our lives. And I'm sorry that I, Kate Bowler, am the first person <laughs> to tell you that. But it made me a nightmare at kids' birthday parties. It just felt like small talk just fell off the rails <laughs> right away So as the caregiver, I imagine you just watched their responses to her again mm-hmm. and again. I did, yeah. 
Was it easier to give care than it had been for you to receive it? Well, it was much easier for me to be the patient than, than it was the caregiver. Mm. You know, I think the reason for that is because, you know, particularly when you're caregiving for someone who you who you know very deeply or even someone who, who you don't, but you're a deeply humane person and you don't like to see yeah. anyone else suffering. It's just hard. And it's you, especially if you're not a physician, so you, you can't really, it, you almost feel helpless in trying to uh, heal them and um, yeah. and then trying to uh, support them emotionally, which of course is, 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 you know, very difficult. It was much more difficult for me to, 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 to be a care, to be a caretaker, be a caregiver, yeah. you know, than it was a patient. Yeah. I hadn't thought about the vulnerability of not being able to fix someone else's problems that being as being at like the core of that work. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why I decided not to publicly reveal that I was, you know, the diagnosis or even undergoing treatment just because I found it harder interacting with people when they knew <laughs> yeah. um, because of what we just talked about, about, you know, um, you know, then, 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 then when they did, didn't, and then there's also a desire, particularly when you have stage four cancer to have some level of normality in which you just, yeah. you know, because so much is abnormal, quote unquote, now. Yeah. Do you think, too, it's because our jobs are so cerebral, like it's easier just to make the argument, you know, and then move on with the work itself than to, I don't think I was socialized in this job to want to give any personal, like to think that my life had really any direct implication on my ideas. And now I can see that that was a bizarre dichotomy. Well, I, I do think that's that's partly the case and and I wonder one of the one of the things that actually got me through treatment was working on how to be an anti-racist what actually happened was I struggled so much to write the personal narrative parts of that book before the diagnosis and after the diagnosis those came much more easily and I think part of that was because I realized through the diagnosis that all of this is personal, yeah. you know, at the same time as it's structural. But then I also was just less bothered with how people would respond to the book because I didn't even know if I'd be. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Screw it was a huge motivation for me to, <laughs> to write. I was, you can be... I don't know if we just borrow courage from it. But yeah, I, I, that one book I wrote right when I was diagnosed, I didn't think I'd see this summer. I wrote that and that part was in like two months. And I don't think I've ever written that quickly <laughs> in my life. But it is, it is a weird unlocking to, I don't know, is it that we, 
Like, what then do you hope other people learn when they understand their own precarity, when they know that the future of good healthcare policy, the future of undoing structural sin, structural racism, like, did you, did the urgency of that just sort of override other desires or factors? Oh, without question. I mean, when you don't really know how long you're going to live, um, making decisions in terms of whether you should do something or when you should do something, I I just, after the diagnosis, I had a very different (laughs) perspective on this. And I just tried to do everything that was humanly possible that that I could do and everything became much more urgent. But that doesn't mean that we should or we do come out with projects um, that aren't high quality because we're coming out with quite a bit. It's just that we're not holding ourselves back (laughs) in the sense (laughs) that, oh, I'll just do this later. You don't know when later is is even going to sort of be on the horizon. Yeah. Reading your work, one of the themes that really emerged to me was that kind of courage. Better now than later, the what would I have to lose, except I lost some pride in all of this. But I, did, I do think we gain something pretty lovely when we lose a bit of that pride. And I, I, was, I was so moved by the um, really stunning op-ed um, slash photos spread in GQ, which you did, which highlighted the bodies of cancer survivors. I wondered if you'd mind telling me a bit about the your willingness to be that vulnerable and what, I mean, there's some really stunning stories in there from yourself and others about about what scars mean to you today. We are in many ways taught to be ashamed of and to hide our scars. And, and, and whether those are physical scars or even mental scars. And I had come across the fact that one of the incredible things that some women's magazines have done is they have showcased the scars of uh, breast cancer survivors, uh, which I think, and, and showcased them in all their beauty, which of course has pushed back and challenged, you know, beauty standards. And, you know, you know, I know particularly as a man that, that some men are likely not wanting to show their scars, not only because of they're not considered to be handsome or, or beautiful, but also because it, it, it demonstrates those scars do their vulnerability or their weakness. And and I just wanted to convey that's actually quite the opposite, right? You know, you know, scars on men or women uh, you know, show their courage and show their strength and 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 show, you know, their 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 beauty. It's another form of natural beauty. And and I just wanted to encourage people to to appreciate and, and to show their scars in the fullest sense. Mm. 
takes a lot of, uh, it really does take a lot of courage to um, embrace the post-changed self that you might wish you could undo. It was also a really just like stunning visual account of disparity in healthcare. And I wondered if you'd mind telling me a bit about the rates of diagnosis for colon cancer in particular for black men. Yeah, so I mean, we African-Americans are 40% more likely to die of colon cancer than, 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 than white Americans. And, and in many ways, we too often are, are, are taught it's the result of genetic or yeah. cultural or behavioral problems with, 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 with African-American patients, just like with COVID. In other words, when, when we learned in April of 2020 that Black, Brown, and Indigenous people were being diagnosed and, and killed from COVID as, at, at the highest rates and higher than white people, the immediate assumption was, oh, they're not socially distancing, or why aren't they taking the coronavirus seriously, or what's wrong with them? It, it's so hard for people to recognize the racial groups as equals even though they imagine themselves as not racist. It's, mm -hmm. it's so hard for people to point to racism as the problem rather than people, mm -hmm. even as they imagine themselves as not racist. Yeah. One of the great gifts of your work um, is that you've given people categories for thinking about racial disparity. You want us to give up on the illusion of neutrality. And I why is that so important when it comes to changing systems like healthcare? Well, to put a fine line on, on, on what I've been saying, when you have a racial disparity, like black people dying at 40% higher rate than, than white people, there's two explanations. Either it's because there's something wrong with black people, or there's something wrong with our policies, conditions, the structures, you know, healthcare itself. Yeah. There's no neutrality there. Like it's either or, and mm -hmm. some people would argue somehow it's both. Mm -hmm. And and so part of this is based on on the research. We we as humans are either thinking that the cause of disparity is the inferiority or superiority of a racial group, or we're thinking it's because of bad policies. Either bad people or bad policies. And and once we acknowledge that that these disparities between groups are either a result of bad people or bad policies. And once we also understand that to say a group of people are bad or that their culture is bad or their behavior is bad or their genetic makeup is bad, that that's a racist idea. Once we come to grips with that, then it, it becomes clear what the problem is and, and what we should be imagining or focused on, which is bad policies and, and, and bad conditions. And so I, I just I'm trying to really bring clarity you know, to, to people because so much of our discussions about race is purposefully clouded. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, people complicated in many ways. So people don't understand. So people don't see this clarity. So the racism can persist and continue to to harm people. And and. And I think if there's any topic we need clarity on, it's this. Yeah. Yeah.
You and I both talk a lot about empathy, like big, courageous empathy. What are some of the limits, though, of how people often think about empathy? Well, actually, my latest book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist, I, I had a whole chapter on empathy and obviously talked about the critical importance of, of raising a child to be empathetic because studies show if you raise a child to be empathetic, they're, they're less likely to be vulnerable to racist ideas. They're more likely to, to be able to stand in the shoes of other people who don't look like them and, and, and therefore treat them equitably. But one of the things I realized and, and one of the things I wrote about in that chapter is that there is a such thing as racist empathy. <laughs> uh, and, and I contrasted that with anti-racist empathy. And, and racist empathy is, let's say a person can be empathetic to people of their own racial group. <laughs> and they've been taught to be empathetic to yeah. people of their own racial group. When they see a white child who is, who is hurting, who's not their own child, and they're white, they almost see their own child. But then yeah. if that child is black, yeah. Yeah. they don't have that same feeling. That's So I'm, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that they're empathetic to that white child. And so that is empathy. But if they don't have a similar empathy for a black child in the same situation, then that's an actual function of racist empathy. And what we're trying to nurture children to have is anti-racist empathy, where they have that same human connection to uh, to all people, to all, and, and, and they don't also make their empathy transactional. They don't say, okay, you know what, you deserve my care and my empathy because you worked hard and, and um, versus you don't deserve it, that, 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 that we're all deserving because we're all human. Mm -hmm. I would love to cure our national rhetoric of the word deserve. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're writing about parenting. Uh, there's, a, there's such an intense honesty to it and the kinds of conversations about race that we should be having with our kids, which really brings us back, I suppose, to where we started, which was mm -hmm. precarity. What kinds of courage can we foster in kids when we are willing to be more candid with them about ourselves and our society about racism? I mean, I think that's that's so critically important because I, I we can lecture and explain and say things to our kids into other kids all day long, but kids primarily learn through what we do <laughs> and uh, and what they observe. And, and so for us to be candid with them, they're not only observing and hearing what we're being candid about, they're, we're showing them the critical importance of being candid, which of course they will model. They We're showing them the importance of being honest about the persistence of racism yeah. or any other social ill. Uh, and we're, 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 we're showing them the courage of, of standing up against that injustice. Uh, and, and, and so I, I just think it is, you know, 
we it is just so important for us as as care as as caregivers to be courageous yeah. and ensure our children sees us they see us being courageous because if there's anything that we need to be as humans to ensure human survival yeah <laughs> you know it's courage yeah to me the ministry of your work <laughs> if i can uh call it a ministry if you don't mind is that you're a you're asking us to do the same thing that I started praying for right when I got sick, which was just, God, let me see the world as it really is. And in that reality, maybe, maybe then, once I see it a little more clearly, then God, might I have a little bit more courage? So thank you, Dr. Kendi. You have such a deep desire for us to see things as they are. And my hope is that it will make us genuinely more empathetic and more kind and more willing to have the sometimes wildly and wonderfully uncomfortable conversations that we all need. Thanks for your incredible work, really. Of course, Kay. Well, thank you for your incredible work as well and in, in, in helping to, to bring together this community of, of, of people who in many ways are being forced to see the world as it is while the rest of the world continues to walk in an illusion but eventually they're going to see it the way we see it too and and we'll be ready to to support them well my dears we are all seeing the truth a bit more clearly lately, aren't we? Sometimes by choice, sometimes by force, sometimes change is easy, and sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it asks everything from us. It is a strange thing being changed, being different than the person we were before. When Ibram asked the folks at GQ to feature people who'd been changed, Oh man, you really have to go take a look at it. Photos in the spread are so striking. I'll add a link to the show notes at katebowler.com so you can see it for yourself. But it's such a strong representation of change, of scars, scars like mine, stitched across their abdomen and chests. Scars that tell the stories of pain and fear, scars that speak of survival, Scars that remind us that we are fundamentally not always the people we were before. So if that's you in any way, changed by a different relationship, by the loss of someone, by the addition of someone, by the way that our lives and our fears have made our lives maybe unrecognizable, then this is a blessing for you for when you need permission to be that changed. Blessed are you, dear one, when the world around you has changed. Everything is different now. Your body, your age, your relationships, your job, your faith, the things that once brought you joy, the way you existed in the world, the people you love and trust and rely on. Things have changed, and it would be silly to imagine you haven't changed with them. You are not who you once were. 
bless that old self. They did such a good job with what they knew. They made you who you were. All the mistakes and heartbreak and naivete and courage. And blessed are who you are now. You who aren't pretending things are the same. Who continue to grow and stretch and show up to your life as it really is. Wholehearted, vulnerable, maybe a little afraid. So, blessed are we, the changed. Before I go, I would be remiss if I didn't give a little public service announcement. So I'm going to be bossy for a minute if you don't mind. Schedule your colonoscopy. If you are 45, you need to be screened. If you have any history of colon cancer in your family, you need to be screened even earlier than 45. And if you have any symptoms like the ones Dr. Kendi described, don't hesitate to advocate for yourself, to demand the scan or the extra test. It's your body and it's precious. We have links in our show notes that can help you know if you're eligible for a colon cancer screening and what to expect when you have one. Visit katebuller.com slash podcasts to learn more. Hi, Kate. Um, my name is Laura. Um, I'm calling from uh, Missoula, Montana. and I am a big fan of yours. Um, and I wanted to answer your question that you posted on your Instagram stories about, you know, um, what have I done to learn to love my body again? And for me, um, I started sewing. Um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer almost two years ago, and treatment for me meant uh, bilateral mastectomy. Um, and I chose to stay flat afterwards, um, no implants or anything, um, and also medically induced menopause. And so, yeah, um, on the other side of it, my body was uh, completely changed and really foreign. And um, and it sounds weird, but I started sewing. Um, I basically threw out my entire wardrobe and started over. And for the last, I'd say, six months or so, I've been really learning how to alter patterns and make clothes that fit who I am now. And I tell you, um, it's been a godsend because I used to look in the mirror and see everything that I lost to the fire. And now um, I increasingly see these, you know, custom clothes that I am hella proud of. And, you know, I think the hardest part of all of the, the cancer, everything was that point when I no longer recognized myself in my reflection. Um, and sewing new clothes feels like a sort of peace offering. Um, this like gift to my body, a way to acknowledge that despite everything that it allowed us to survive. Um, and I think it's also a way that I can stop trying to reclaim who I was and just let myself be whoever I'm going to be after all of this. So that's my story. Thank you so much. Bye. Hi, Kate. My name is Jessica, and I'm calling from Washington, D.C. I'm calling to answer the questions about struggling to live in my body after disease and learning to love my body again. About two years ago, I was diagnosed with a rare, incurable, not easily treatable stomach disease. It's not terminal, so it won't kill me. Instead, I suffer with a lot of chronic pain and complications from the disease, and sometimes dying seems like it might have been easier. I'm 36. 
When I'm in pain, I struggle to be inside my body. I disassociate a lot, often involuntarily, and I haven't quite learned to love my body since getting this disease, but I'm trying to learn how to come back inside my body, even when I'm in pain. I write poetry. I do a lot of therapy. I scream into pillows. I cry. I read your work and work similar to it. I talk to friends who can handle hard things. I planted a cut flower garden with my four-year-old daughter, and we make flower arrangements for neighbors and ourselves with our huge crop of zinnias and I think they're um, black-eyed Susans. That helps me remember that my body can still make beautiful things. And I do my work at minority research jobs, and that makes me feel purposeful. I do all these things in a body that feels broken, but it reminds me that I can still do good things even while broken. Maybe I'll learn to love my body someday. First, I have to learn to trust it and trust my experiences in my body. Right now, I think I'm learning to feel safe in my body and hope that next I can be friends with it. Maybe love will come after that. Thank you for your work, Kate and for the opportunity to share my story. It means a lot to me. And before you go, a very special thank you to our generous partners who make this work possible. Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School, and Leadership Education. And to my wonderful team, Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Gwen Higginbotham, and Keith Weston. Thank you. Come find me online. I'm at Kate C. Bowler, and apparently I'm on TikTok now. Or if email is your thing, I'll send out a blessing every week. Sign up for free at katebowler.com slash newsletter. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>